My, my tools on my sidewalk there on my way to my car today. Somebody turned the lights out this morning. I think it was the Lord. It's a good thing. Sleep at night. Well, it was bound to happen. I knew one day I'd come to Amen and forget my notes. So uh, all I've got is the one with the blanks on it. We'll just see how we do. Uh, this one back here ought to be ought to be safe enough. So we'll we'll just uh, maybe we'll get out early. That'd be good with it. Hey, let's turn to Galatians five. And uh, notice that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that in this great letter is that there are two great mysteries to the Christian faith, remember? First of all, the mystery that my sins could be forgiven by somebody else's death. That I could have righteousness by somebody else's life. That my sins could be imputed to him and his righteousness could be imputed to me. That's a mystery. You won't find that. There's no analogy for that. There's no kindness like that anywhere in the world. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the mystery, the first great mystery of the faith is that we are saved by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. The second mystery is who's going who's gonna to help you live this Christian life? Well, the Lord himself. The second mystery is God takes up residence in us. As the Apostle Paul says, Christ, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's the great mystery, he says, in Colossians uh, chapter 2. So Paul is saying the same thing in, in Galatians. Two great mysteries. We've seen this idea of being justified by faith alone, that uh, Christ himself has won the victory for us. He's lived the life for us, died the death for us. Second mystery is the Spirit takes up residence in our lives so that we are increasingly conformed to his likeness. Now, when we, So we're talking now about this second great mystery. He says in verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They, nature. they are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want. So we see that if you're going to live the life of Christ, if you're going to live the life of the Spirit, you're going to be in conflict with with yourself, your old self. And there's going to be a battle, and it goes on and on. You're going to feel schizophrenic sometimes because there are two things at war. God living in you at war with your old fallen self. And he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. You're not under that system of just simply trying to look at the law and put it into practice like a moral robot. You're delivered from that system. Now it's life. It's personal. It, it's intuitive. It's not just mechanical law-keeping. It's intuitive life, living the life of your Father because he, His Spirit dwells in you. So it's intuitive, it's personal, and it's motivated by love. It's something you want to do. And if, if you back up here, we, we saw uh, that He said that uh, if we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the, the desires of the flesh. So we're going to live by the Spirit. Well, we keep reading. You look in Acts, uh, in, in verse 19, you see the acts of the flesh. There they are, a bunch of them. Verses 19, 20, 21. Then 22, we see the outcome of the life of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if you're living like a robot, this is what you're supposed to do anyway. So there's nothing against this uh, in terms of the law. This is real law-keeping. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. So the flesh we have put to death by faith in Jesus Christ with its passions and desires. Now, since we live by the Spirit, we've put to death the flesh, we're now living by the Spirit, he says, look, just march in line with the Spirit. You're living by the Spirit. Live the Spirit's life. Look at the Holy Spirit. Live the life the Spirit lives. Live the life the Spirit wants you to live. Christ is in you. Live according to the way Christ lives. That's, that's the one. He's the one you love. He's the one you're imitating. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. In other words, let's not go the opposite route and devour each other. Let's walk in line with the Spirit. Now, when you're living the Christian life, two things are important when you're thinking about the Spirit-filled life. Remember, the engine to all of this is the Spirit Himself, but He's also the model. 
So you're looking the life of the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit, but also to look at the life of the Spirit so that whenever you're seeking to live the Christian life, you have two things going on in this second mystery. <coughs> One is you're depending upon the Lord for power because you can't do this by the power of the flesh. The flesh is not going to help you live the life of the Spirit. Remember, they're, they're in contrast to each other. So if you try to just just work up all the moral energy that you've got in your natural self, it will, it will fight you to the death. It will not let you live the life of the Spirit because your flesh is contrary to it. So you've got to live this life by leaning on the Spirit. That's the first thing. It's the engine. If you think about a, a railroad car or a, a train, you've got the engine, but then you've got tracks. You've got to have tracks to run on as well as an engine. And some people will just only talk about the tracks. That's the law. And they have no engine. They're depending upon their own moral selves. Other people, man, they got an old fired-up engine. You know, they speak in tongues and float four feet off the ground without visible means and all the rest. But they have no track. They're, they're ignoring the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're ignoring the law of God. They're ignoring the direction in which we're supposed to be going. And that's the reason that you have many well-intentioned people who ignore some of the evils around them. You could see it, it, it you know, if, if you, like me, are a southerner, you can look back to the generation before us, and here they were going to church and worshiping God, and then they were, they were being bigoted in their relationships with other uh, people from other races. There's no excuse for that. What, what had they done? Well, they may have had the engine, but they, they didn't have the tracks, and they didn't admit that the tracks were there, and that is that we live together as one people because of Jesus Christ, the, His his sacrifice has broken down the wall of hostility. And you see that around the world. You can see it in Africa right now where tribes just devour each other and both of them are dominantly Christian. How in the world did that happen? How, how is it that the Tutsis and the uh, Hutus just slaughtered each other and they both professed to be Christians? Because they were not taught. They were not taught. They, the, the Hutus had their little worship service and Tutsis had their little worship service. They segregated and no one ever rose up courageously enough to say, y'all can't live like this anymore because the gospel says here's a track you've got to run on. And so they were talking about regeneration, being born again and the blood of Jesus Christ forgiving them, but they weren't taught the, the, law, the law of the kingdom, the rules of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom. So you have to have both in your Christian discipleship. That's what Paul is saying. Be filled with the Spirit, invite the Spirit into your life, and then if you're living the life of the Spirit, if the Spirit is in you, now keep in step with the Spirit. Figure out what the Spirit's agenda is for you personally in your moral and spiritual development, in all of your relationships, in your business, in your workplace, in your city, in your nation, in your world. Figure out what the Spirit's agenda is and keep in line with Him. Now, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying you got to have both. We don't just spiritualize and say, oh, it's just between you and Jesus. And that's what the southern white church was doing in the 19th and 20th century. It was called the spirituality of the church. That the church is basically a spiritual thing and it doesn't get involved in politics, which means we don't get involved in public righteousness. No one ever said it that way, but that's exactly what was going on. People bifurcated their spiritual relationship with God from their daily living. And Paul says, forget it. He says, if you're living by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. March in line with the Spirit's work. Figure out who the Spirit is and what He wants and the, the mission that He's given us and live that way. Now, what is that track? What is it to keep in step with the Spirit? Now we back up to verses 22 and 23. Here it is, the fruit of the Spirit. This is, in other words, the fruit of the Spirit is what a man looks like who's keeping step with the Spirit just in terms of his own personal character and development. This is what he's becoming like if he's in step with the Spirit. So first of all, we see that patience is essential. Patience is essential. Why? Because it is an aspect of the fruit. Of the, it is the fruit that the Spirit bears in a life. If a man is filled with the Spirit, he will become more patient. It is essential. Now, what Webster says patience is, is what does Webster say? Patience equals 
No, it doesn't say there. It's, uh, it, oh, I'm supposed to tell you that, I guess. All right? Let me see if I remember. Patience is forbearance, uh, steadfast forbearance under provocation or strain. That's what Webster says. You might check me out see if the preacher lied today. Probably that's it. Steadfast forbearance under provocation or strain. So you can see that patience is bearing up under provocation or strain. I think Webster gives us a pretty good definition there. Now let's, let's notice that first of all, our patience is essential to our relationship with God. Augustine said, patience is the companion of wisdom. How well put. How do you expect to have wisdom without patience? You're not. Now let me, let me just ask you something. With some of the dumbest things you ever did, some of the biggest mistakes you ever made, now just tell me, how often was it true that right in the middle of that dumb mistake was impatience? How often was it because you flew off and you let your viscera make the decision for you? You let your testosterone do the deciding for you. Instead of using your own noggin and asking God for wisdom to do the thing that would actually lead to the best outcome. That's what, we, as we saw some time ago studying wisdom literature, wisdom leads to the best outcome in the long run. And a wise man is one who sees the best outcome in the long run. Now, how many times have you made your dumbest mistakes because you flew off the handle or you got impatient and you tried to do, make something happen in the short run and you sacrificed the long-term best outcome? I can just think of so many cases. I remember <laughs> some years ago, I, I think my son was playing basketball in Virginia and uh, my wife and myself and my two daughters, so I'm traveling with three women, we were traveling to, to Virginia. And we left, I think, in the afternoon. So we didn't get to Jefferson City, Tennessee until about midnight. And I planned it that way. And I made a motel reservation very carefully. Jefferson City, right there along the way, or somewhere near there. So I pull off the interstate about midnight, and I go to the front desk. And I say, I give her my name and my credit card and so on. And she says, sir, I'm awfully sorry, but we don't have a room. Uh, now, I have three women behind me sitting there at midnight, expecting their father and their husband to provide a place. And I'm not very happy at midnight. <laughs> and I said, well, ma'am, uh, yeah, actually, you do have a room for me. I said, I, I called uh, earlier today and had a guaranteed reservation. You have a room for me somewhere. She said, sir, I'm sorry we really don't. I said, yeah, you do. Uh, and you're, you're going to find it. Uh, and it's going to be either in this institution, this building, or it's going to be one nearby. And you're going to call and, and set up a motel room because I made a guaranteed reservation. She said, sir, I just don't have any room. I said, who's your boss? And she started to cry. <clears throat> and all of a sudden I'm realizing these six eyes behind me are bearing down on my back. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. that you know, I was <clears throat> So finally, it turns out, she, she actually did have a room. The bathroom was under repair, small problem. Uh, so we, we went to that room and stayed there. And, so, and when we got in the room, we walked in, and some of you who know my daughter, my older daughter, Mary, well, you won't have to stretch your imagination to imagine this. We walked in the room, I started, you know, getting my stuff out. Mary sat down over in the corner and she said, Hey, good job, Reverend Ass. Uh, it's hard to correct your child's language when uh, you've given her provocation. Uh, Reverend S., and obviously that one sticks with me in my own mind. They haven't brought it up that often, but I do remember it myself. <laughs> it really screws up your relationship with Jesus Christ when you're not going to be patient. I mean, that's just really clear. Look at, look at Romans 12, 12 with me just a moment. And look how the Apostle Paul puts it. 
Romans 12, 12. Look what Paul says. He says, be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. He says, doesn't, he doesn't say, be joyful in all the good things God is doing for you right now. He says, be joyful in hope. Hope, as we'll see later, is the mother of patience. Hope is the mother of patience. Be joyful in hope. That's how you do it. Patient in affliction. So there's something demanded of us when tough times come, when you're there at midnight with three women, you don't have a room. There's some little test that's going on. You can either pass it or flunk it. I know how to do the latter. I'm trying to learn how to do the former. Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. He doesn't say faithful in turning your circumstances around completely. Come on, get on top of this. Change things. No, be faithful in prayer. There's your formula. That verse kind of says it all. That's called this whole... You could, if you put a superscription on this verse, you'd entitle it, you would say, waiting on God. And that's what patience is. You're joyful in your hope, you're patient in your afflictions, and you're faithful in prayer. Now there's the patient man. And you can see from that what that does. It takes everything that would have made you turn from God and be reverent ass and makes you turn toward God. All the things that would have made you turn away from God and take things in your own hands and make very poor decisions, it turns you to be intimate with God the Father because you're joyful in your hope. You're steadfast in your afflictions. And you're faithful in your prayer life. It would have been a whole lot better if I was said, hang on just a woman. To say to the woman, hang on just a moment. I go over in the corner, Lord, would you please correct this situation? I've been a whole lot better off instead of trying to deal with her. There you have it. It's patience is of the essence of our relationship with God. Without patience, you're not going to have an intimate relationship with God because what happens in impatience is basically what we call practical atheism. You really don't believe that he's going to work things out for good in the end. You really don't believe that he's working good in you right now in your affliction. You really don't believe that he's got the power to change things. Therefore, you're going to take it into your hands and you're going to make it your legitimate complaint that things are going against you. And you're going to express your indignation. It's practical atheism. Impatience is. That's what we've got to realize. It's a work of the flesh. So it's, in, it's indigenous to our relationship with God. But what about our relationship with others? It's essential to our relationship with others. Turn to Proverbs chapter 14. And let's look at several verses tucked in just three chapters right here that show us what patience really is. If you look at this on page 1000. Proverbs 14.29, Solomon says, A patient man has great understanding. Now, here's the wisest man on the face of the earth until the time of Jesus Christ. Wisest man in the Old Testament was Solomon. And here's what he's saying. Real understanding and real wisdom is intimately attached to patience. And you think about men that you've known in your life And you would say, now there is a wise man. You tell me, was he impatient? There's no way. Solomon says, a patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. I understand that verse intimately, the second half of it. So notice the contrast in 1429 between patient man and quick-tempered. So if you want a, sort of a biblical definition of patience, it, it, it seems that it has something to do with anger control. It has something to do with getting off your agenda, getting onto God's agenda, which is the way you control your anger. It, it means being much more intentional with your anger. Look, for example, at chapter 15, verse 18. Here's another way of describing this anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension. But a patient man calms a quarrel. Okay? You see the contrast between hot-tempered and patient. The hot-tempered man creates chaos. Not just in his relationship with you, but your relationship with others. 
That's what a hot-tempered man does. Always, there's always chaos, always hurt feelings, always dissension, strife, wherever he goes, if he's there long enough. What does a patient man do? He's constantly resolving relationships. He's constantly healing where brokenness existed. He's constantly bringing people together. He's constantly getting people on the same line instead of having them going in different directions. He calms a quarrel. Then look at chapter 16, next page. Uh, actually, two, two more pages. Look at 1632. And you see that Solomon says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. So, which leads us to our next point, that patience is essential to our relationship with the world. And oddly, Stevenson said, a wise man does not try to hurry history. Many wars have been avoided by patience. And many have been precipitated by reckless haste. All you have to do is pull your history book out. Actually, you can pull your newspaper out. And see that a lot of international strife is the result of impatient men. And a lot of the reason for international peace is because there were some long-suffering, wise men and women in the midst of it. Edmund Burke said, Our patience will achieve more than our force. Sounds like a typical Englishman, doesn't it? But true. And patience is essential to our relationship with others in the world, even in ministry. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he said, There are three indispensable requirements for being an effective missionary. You might want to write these down. Number one, patience. Number two, patience. And number three, patience. <laughs> That's what he said. In fact, there's a story of a missionary back in the 19th century who, was, who wanted to be a missionary. He was a candidate. And he went over to see the uh, leader of that mission at his home. And the leader said to him, come and I'll talk with you. Be at my house at 6.30 in the morning. Sounds like amen Bible study. And the man lived miles and miles away during an age when you walk. So obviously he was up in the middle of the morning, middle of the night. And he walked and got there right at 6.30. And uh, the leader didn't come out. And the man just waited. The young man just waited from 6.30, 7.30, 8.30, 9.30, finally, 10 o'clock. The old pastor comes out and visits with him. And he says to him, sir, do you love Jesus? And the young man said, yes, sir, I sure do. Uh, do you read your Bible? Yes, sir, I read the Bible. And uh, he, he said, um, so uh, why didn't you uh, leave when I didn't come see you? You know, until 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, sir, I want to be a missionary. He said, okay, you'll, you'll do fine. <laughs> he was just testing him. Because those of you who know, if you have any experience internationally, especially in an underdeveloped world, you just better be ready to have things not work right. Nothing works in Haiti. Nothing works in Haiti, including the people. And if you're a man who has already predetermined everything's going to work according to the formulas that you're going to impose upon those around you, you will not be a very good missionary. And I might say you're not really good at some other things that you hadn't noticed yet. But, but you wouldn't make a good missionary. I mean, how often is patience required in parenting? If you really want to be a good parent, you better be patient. I remember that cartoon where the, the son comes to his dad and his dad's looking at the report card over his glasses and he says to his son, five Fs? And his son says, yeah, dad, what do you think it is? Heredity or environment? <laughs> I mean, you got to be patient. I remember, <laughs> I remember one time I went in the backyard this is, you know, 20 years ago. I went in the backyard and my sons were out there playing, you know, in the backyard and, and they were shooting these little bottle rockets. And I, it was after church, actually. So I, I had my suit on and my wingtips. And I just got ready to say, all right, now you all stop shooting those bottle rockets. And three of them went right over my shoes. <laughs> they were firing them at me, you know. And you, you kind of lose, you know, if you lose it. You've got to have a sense of humor. You have to have patience in order to deal with people, especially those that are close to you. And gentlemen, 
You know, any of us who are married can take about two minutes and just write nonstop all the dumb, stupid, idiotic things you said and you did because you lost your patience. And you know that those stupid, idiotic things added nothing to your marriage and they took a lot of things away. Now, God forgives and restores. Praise the Lord. That's the reason I'm married for 38 years. That's for sure. It's only by the grace of God. But I could, I could be one of those that could write on and on. I could write all day long all the stupid, idiotic things that I said that came out of impatience that undermined a good relationship with my wife. So it's essential to our relationship with God, our relationship to others, and our relationship to the world. And you see, uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, you'll see the fundamental problem with impatience. Uh, and you know in dealing with people, if, if you're going to be patient, this means you're going to have to just forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive all the time. And Peter was starting to get the idea that that was the case. This is page 1576, Matthew 18. Peter was starting to get this idea about forgiveness. And so he, he wants to know uh, in, in verse 21, Lord, now how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Now, I mean, should I do this seven times? Is that what you're saying, Lord, that I'd forgive somebody up, up to seven times? I mean, that's a lot. And the Lord says, Peter, no, knucklehead, let me tell you something. It's not seven times, but it's 77 times. That is, it's more than you can imagine, Peter. It's endless. It's on and on and on. That's what I'm talking about. And then Jesus tells this wonderful little parable about a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And there was a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Gentlemen, this is millions and millions and millions of dollars, probably $100 million. This is a lot of money. The king eventually forgives the man his debt. Then the man goes out and somebody owes him 100 denarii, which is probably the equivalent of about $20,000. That's a lot of money, but it isn't hundreds of millions of dollars. And the man who owed him $20,000 or 100 denarii, this man was ready to wring his neck and he wouldn't forgive his debt. And the king says, well, you don't forget him of his debt. Throw that man back in prison until he pays every bit of it. In other words, you've obviously forgotten the debt that was forgiven you. This is where patience comes from intellectually is that you're simply contemplating the patience that somebody had with you, namely Jesus Christ, and therefore you realize you have no right to be impatient with another one of his servants. He forgave you $100 million. You cannot be impatient with a man who owes you $20,000 because he belongs to the same master to whom you're reporting, and this master cares about him just as much as he cares about you. Now, there is the way you contemplate, frame up how you're supposed to be living life. You're to live life as a forgiven man. You're to live life as a man with whom God has had inordinate patience. That's the way you keep thinking about things. And then so when you go back to ask forgiveness for your impatience, and that's another thing, the only way you're going to get some mastery over this is just keep short accounts. Don't let the day go by. And if you're home, don't let the hour go by. Give yourself a few minutes to slam the screen door and go around the block, come back, and then immediately apologize to your wife. Keep short accounts. And pretty soon you'll get sick and tired of confessing the same sin. So that eventually you'll go, you'll catch yourself and say, oh, I don't want to go slam the door and go around the block. I don't have the time. And you'll just be patient. (laughs) I mean, really, discipline yourself. Don't let yourself sweep things under the rug. Deal with short accounts. Say, Lord, I want to live the life of the Spirit. I want to become like you. I want to be to others how you've been to me. Help me, Lord. Now! No, that would be impatient. (laughs) So that's the way it works in Matthew 18. Now let's, let's look secondly. Where does this patience come from? Obviously, it comes from God. If the fruit of the Spirit is patience, we're to remember that it is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, where do you pick this up? Well, if we were to look at Exodus 34, you'll find this great story where, you know, the people had built a golden calf under Aaron. They wanted to go back to Egypt, and the calf was one of the Egyptian gods. They had thousands of gods, but the calf was one of them. So they, they mold this golden calf. They want to make that their god, go back to Egypt with Egypt's gods, Egypt's ways, their, their slavish ways, which is crazy. It's insane. 
Moses comes down from the mountain. He just is completely shocked. Breaks the tablets. Has to go back up and do the tablets again. And God threatens to leave them. He says, these people are so wicked. If I hang around these people, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm holy. They're sinful. They're going to be destroyed. And Moses basically says, after all the opposition he's faced with those people, Moses basically said, Lord, if you wipe them out, you can wipe me out too. And furthermore, Lord, if you don't go with us, there's no sense in going at all. So the Lord says, the Lord, Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord says, okay. Now, what you've got to remember is the Lord's the one who gave us Moses. <laughs> the Lord's the one who appointed a mediator to plead with him on behalf of the people he loved. And that was Moses' appointed assignment. Just like Jesus now, the new Moses, is the mediator appointed by God. And Jesus Christ pleads for us and intercedes for us with the, the merit of his own blood, which Moses could never do. So Jesus is the perfect mediator. Moses was the symbolic uh, mediator, uh, mediator. And so Moses pleads for the people and God relents. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. You ask that, but all you can do is see my backside. So I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, put my hand over you, and I'll pass by and you can see my backside, says the Lord. <laughs> and then he says, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to proclaim my name to you, the Lord, that is Jehovah, Jehovah. The gracious and compassionate God, and then here's the word, slowed on anger. In God's very name, Jehovah, compassionate, gracious, you have slow to anger. What does slow to anger mean? It means, literally in the Hebrew, long nose. Which means, guys, I'm a whole lot like God. (laughs) Long nose. Why does God say, I've got a long nose? Here's why. When he gets angry, he goes, he takes a real big, deep breath. Literally, that's, that's what the Hebrew means, that he, he takes a real deep breath before he expresses his anger. His anger is contemplated, it's deliberate, it's intentional, it's righteous, it's constructive. And so you want to be a man with a long nose. Take a deep breath. Count to ten. Be intentional because that is who your God is. The Lord Jesus Christ, can you imagine what it was like for him to have disciples like Peter? (laughs) Get this. Jesus has from all eternity planned to offer himself up on Calvary's cross to pay for sinners who would rebel against his father when time is instituted through Adam and Eve. The second person of the Trinity had decreed from all eternity, this is what I'm going to do for these people who will be fallen. I am going to come and I'm going to rescue them. And the only way they could be rescued is if the perfect sacrifice is made substitutionally for them. I'm going to lay down my life in a, in a fleshly body. I'm going to take up residence in a human body and I'm going to offer that body as a sacrifice and rescue these people. And therefore, the, the grace of God will be glorified because who could imagine that the owner and creator of the entire universe would take on the flesh of these little worms take on worm life and live their life and then die in their place and then exalt them to be like Him. Who could imagine such grace in the deity? And Christ from all eternity was delighted to submit Himself to this. So here He is. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's beginning the most intense part of His suffering. He is, he is as He's praying, He is sweating blood. He is so traumatized thinking about the price that is getting ready to be paid that He has planned from all eternity. And so here are his disciples. What is their reaction? Peter cuts off the ear of the temple servant, Malchus. Cuts his ear off. And he wasn't aiming for the ear. And the Lord just has to say, Peter, put the sword back. And touches the man's ear and heals him. He <laughs> said, okay, let's get on my business now. I mean, think about this. Peter fell asleep three times. Peter's job was to pray. Peter couldn't even utter our father. He was, he was out. He was gone. No help at all. And then when he's finally awake, what does he do? Whack. Cuts off one of God's creator, creature's ears. Now, gentlemen, I don't know about you, but when you're in the midst of your most intense suffering and you're one of your number one business partners 
does something totally idiotic like that, that requires enormous patience. Look at the patience of Jesus Christ. Well, even more illustrative, think about the patience he has had with you. (laughs) Think about some of the dumb, idiotic, sinful, wicked things you have done since you profess faith in Jesus Christ, not before then. I'm not talking about the old life. I'm talking about yesterday. Think of the thoughts that crossed your mind that you entertained. Think of the women that you undressed. Think of the, the truths that you shaded just a little bit to make yourself look better than you really did. Think about all the things that you did to exalt yourself and to put other people down. Just yesterday, and you're His servant bound for heaven. His blood was applied to you. I mean, just think of this. What about the patience of God? This is the reason that in Second Peter chapter 3, and we studied this recently, Peter says, look, God, God is a wrathful God, but He is patient, not willing that any of you should perish. The reason that Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet, you want to know why? He is patient. <laughs> He's patient. Some of you are taking a lot of time to decide to follow Christ. I mean, you've been considering it forever. I mean, it goes back to your childhood, and you've been toying with it, thinking about it. Christ is patient with you. Now, let me tell you, if I were Christ, what I'd do with you? <laughs> but aren't you glad I'm not? It's Christ is patient. The whole reason he hasn't come back is that he's patient until all of his people come in and put their trust in him, and he can save them. So... That's the reason that it's essential for us is because patience comes from God. So what we do constantly is look to Him. This is the reason that Paul, in thinking about his own salvation, he says, I am a trophy to the patience of God. I was destroying people because they're Christians. I was committing unspeakable iniquities. But God was patient with me. So how could Paul not be patient? Now thirdly, notice that patience comes through trials. Patience comes through trials. It comes from God, but God works it into your heart through trials. I'm sorry, I wish there were an easier way. But normally, wise men are men who have taken life's lessons and rather than just dismiss them or work around them, or ignore them, or pretend that they're not there, they actually become students of those situations. They actually take out of those situations everything that can change their character, and they benefit from their trials. So patience comes through trials. The fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit-filled life lived in this world of affliction and woe. So it's the trial of affliction And all you need to do is look at Job. And Job lost his seven sons, his three daughters. He lost his enormous estate. He lost his health. He lost his desire to live. He wanted to die. And as we saw in our study, the only thing he didn't lose was his carping wife. That he got to keep. But he lost everything everything else. And what did he say in Job 13, 15? He says, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust Him. Now what does this mean? This means that Job knew the Lord well enough to trust providence in his life. What happens when you're impatient under affliction is you really don't believe that God is benevolent toward you in your affliction. You believe this is an accident, God has nothing to do with it, and or you believe that God is not to be trusted in to some degree. I'm not saying that you don't think you're not that you think you're not going to heaven. I'm just saying you're not quite sure that Romans 8:28 is real for you anyway. That's what starts to happen when you get impatient. You really what's happening is your faith in his benevolent providence is waning. But notice what was at the root of Job's life. It doesn't matter if he kills me. I'm going to trust him right through his killing me. And sometimes, gentlemen, he does kill us. 
And in fact, if you want to know the truth, he kills every one of us. Every one of us goes home when he appoints. And he orders that day. And he orders the way that you're going to go. Some of us are terrified by how we're going to die. You don't need to be terrified. The Lord has already designed it. It's for your good. And it will be for his glory. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So the solution for our impatience and affliction is to look again to his providence and trust him and realize what, realize what the underlying problem is. It's a lack of trust in God's character, his character of grace and love. Well, notice also that we have the trial of opposition. And we have many things opposing us in this world. And sometimes uh, we give in. Now, notice what patience is not. Patience is not indifference. Patience is not passivity. Patience is, is not carelessness. And some people who appear to be patient are simply lazy. That's not what patience is. Uh, Job was very successful in this world. He didn't do that by just sitting around. Uh, Jesus Christ was certainly not indifferent. Jesus Christ could be very angry. He turned the tables over in the temple. You say, well, wasn't he impatient there? Impatient, patience does not cancel anger. It controls it. The only anger that is useful is anger that is intentional. It is intentionally focused on righteous ends. It is intentionally focused on God's agenda and not yours. And it is obviously interwoven with things like love and mercy and compassion and justice. And that's where a man's anger is supposed to come out of. Because God is angry also. He is wrathful. But His wrath, wrath is always highly intentional. It is pure. And ultimately, it is constructive. If you want to know how we got out of slavery in Egypt, it was by the wrath of God. He exercised His wrathful justice on Pharaoh. And that is how we were delivered. And one day his wrath will be like a laser beam focused on everything that's opposed you. All of your enemies. Every enemy of your soul will be destroyed by God's wrath. And we want to be like God. So rather than Peter who just takes things into our own hands and does what we want to do in our way, in our timing, we trust the Lord to do things His way in His timing and we fulfill the, the assignment, the specific assignment that He has given us in this day. And that's the reason we read the Bible. What is my assignment? It doesn't cancel God's wrath, neither does it cancel our wrath. But it means that our wrath is finely focused and very intentional. And if you work in a business, there are times when you need to exercise anger. And it needs to be controlled and intentional and for constructive purposes. And every man who's a wise man learns how to get control of that anger. Why do we lose our temper? I can tell you why I do. Because I have a right in my mind. It's, it's, it's sort of a self-centered right to have things work right around me. And if they don't, I have a right to be angry. That's my agenda. That's not God's agenda. I'm determining how things are supposed to operate around me and how people are supposed to operate around me. And I make up my mind, and that's where my anger is going to be focused is when my goals and my agenda is frustrated. How about you? When do you get angry? Or I get angry when things are not happening in the timing that I want. You know, Margaret Thatcher said, I'm an extraordinary patient woman providing things work out the way I want them to. <laughs> well, of course. Like Mark Twain says, a Christian man is a man 
holding four aces. <laughs> Anybody can be patient when you're holding four aces. So the test is, what when you're not holding four aces? What about when things aren't going well? Can you shift your mind in a God-centered gear and think about what's the purpose in God's view of what's going on here and let your anger be expressed only on His behalf, which means only when it's appropriate for you in whatever station you have to express the right measure of anger in the right direction in order to express His character. And it's usually not the strident ways that so many evangelicals do it in public life. It's usually not that way. That's usually fleshly anger with a spiritual excuse. And what you'll find out is most of the people involved in those strident conservative movements are people who when they go home have a really hard time controlling their anger and who find this public strident expression one way to just kind of get it out. It's sort of therapeutic for them. But it's not very therapeutic for the rest of us. And it's not very therapeutic for the gospel in our world. Most people think that evangelicals, that is, those people who believe the gospel, are people who hate homosexuals, uh, who are racist, and, and who, who want to take over and have everything their way. That's quite an agenda. That's, that's what New York Times says that people think evangelicals are. And it's because we haven't learned to control our anger and focus it on God's agenda instead of what we perceive to be our own comfort. John Quincy Adams said, Patience and perseverance have a magical effect before which difficulties disappear and obstacles vanish. Now, that's from a political and a military point of view, public life. And it is amazing how developing the life of the Spirit, that is, inviting the Spirit into your life and seeking to live the life of the Spirit, enables you to be much more useful everywhere that you go. And, you know, when you, when you develop patience, you can really do some cool things. You know the story of the guy who was out in the middle of a very busy street like Poplar, his car breaks down and traffic stops behind him and they just start honking. All of them are honking. So the, the man uh, gets out from under his hood and he comes back to the, the man in the first car right behind him. And he says, sir, I'm having some problem uh, up here with my car. Why don't we do this? Why don't you go up and see if you can fix it and I'll just sit here and I'll honk for you. You know, when you're patient, you can think of really cool stuff like that, you know? Just get yourself under control. You know, there's really something really nice that can come out of this if you just think about it, you know? Now, look at the, the third trial I want to mention before we, we break. And that is there's a trial of waiting. And I suppose for a lot of us, this is the most difficult one of all. The trial of waiting. And that is... Okay, so things are going to work out fine in the end, but boy, I tell you what, I wish the end would go ahead and get here. Or I know that you know, all things work together for good, but for heaven's sakes, I'm having a hard time seeing the good in this. Or I know that this marriage can get healed probably if I'll just behave myself, but I sure am having a hard time waiting on her to change her attitude. It's just waiting, waiting, waiting. You know, the most difficult place for... Uh, a, a type A person like myself, is to be in the waiting room. Just the waiting room. is just horrible. And what you, what you need to do, go back to Romans 12, 12. Remember, that is waiting on God. And the problem with impatience, when things aren't going your way, when you're having to wait, the problem is you want to be God. You want to control your surroundings. You want it to work the way you want to work it. You're not on His agenda. You're on your agenda. Go back to Romans 12, 12 and consider whether you're being steadfast. Consider whether you're being patient and really turning to Him and His agenda. Consider whether you're really exercising the discipline of prayer and of waiting upon Him in prayer. That's the life of the godly man. He's a man of prayer. And when your afflictions come, when your opposition comes, and when those inexplicable moments of waiting come, those are the times when you're developing your waiting upon the Lord. Somebody said hope is the mother of patience. Somebody. I'm sorry, I couldn't remember. But it's somebody. Hope is the mother of patience. Develop hope in the Lord. And what you can look at is that text in Hebrews 11. Abraham. Gentlemen, think about Abraham. 
he was doing just fine. 75 years of age, grandchildren, having a great time over there in Ur of the Chaldees. And the Lord tells him to get up, 75, go to a place hundreds of miles away that he had never been in. I want you to go from Iraq. I want you to go to Israel. That's a long walk, gentlemen, at 75. Abraham was doing fine. So he goes to, he obeys and goes to a place he's never seen. And he's told he's going to have a multitude of children. That's great. Sarah's been barren now, and they're in their senior years. Sarah's been barren all her life. Now you're telling me I'm going to have a nation of children. Right. So 14 years later, Abraham says, uh, Lord, now I'm 89. You think maybe, uh, <clears throat> I misunderstood what you said the first time, maybe it's not a child of Sarah. Maybe it's a child of Hagar, her maid. So why don't I have a little, little affair with Hagar, <laughs> see what we can do there. So he does and gets Ishmael. The Lord says, no, that's not the one. So he's 90 years of age. I'm sorry, 99, and Sarah is 90 before Isaac is born. Folks, that's patience. Your first child comes when you're 99. That's patience. And then remember, Abram never has one piece of property except a place to bury Sarah. That is it. His patience, the writer of Hebrews says, is so great. Here's how great his patience was. He believed that ultimately God would give him everything he promised in the next life. That's what Abraham believed. And you cannot be a patient man if you don't hope, if you don't put all your eggs in that basket, if you don't take all the promises of God and realize they're all going to come true in his timing. Some of them now, some of them partially now, most of them later. And then and only then can you live the life of obedience from the heart and be a man of faith. So that's the reason that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's who God is. And it's who we must be if we're going to know Him. And it's who we must be if filled with the Spirit we're going to live lives in keeping with the Spirit, in line with the Spirit. And it's the way we must be if anybody's going to look at our lives and say, I think I noticed something divine about that life. Something, there seems to be an invasion from another place into that life. There's a patience that goes beyond mere earthly reason. And that's exactly what patience is. It is from another place. Let us pray. Father, thank you for being so patient with us. And we pray that you enable us to be patient with ourselves, patient with others, patience with those in our business, in our workplace, in this city, in the nation, in the world, and most of all, patient with you, Lord, waiting upon your timing for the good things you promise. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys.